A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Hover. Buying a domain name for your passion should be the first and biggest step to building your personal brand online. New customers get 10% off any domain extension by going to hover.com slash CanadaLand. And this episode is brought to you by the motion picture Ladybird, which has a 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The New York Times calls this movie perfect and flat out wonderful. See this funny and heartwarming film that critics and audiences are falling in love with. Ladybird is now playing in Toronto, Vancouver, Victoria, Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg, and Halifax, opening everywhere else on November 24th. Guys, I saw this movie. It's really great. Like everybody, I'm trying to make sense of what's going on right now with the Weinstein effect. The hits just keep coming. The creeps just keep getting outed. And I've had like the full range of reactions from, come on, that one's not so bad to lock that motherfucker up right now. I would like to think that there is some logic and reason to my responses, that I am Solomonic and wise in these little tribunals of judgment that play out in my head. But I'm not so sure. This Louis C.K. thing in particular, it's pretty difficult. Don't get me wrong. It's not difficult to condemn what he did. Cornering women and masturbating in front of them, yeah, that is not like borderline or gray zone behavior. That is assault. It is aggressive. It's hostile. It's gross. And right now, given what I know about him, I feel like I can never look at the guy or his work the same way ever again. To me, he's finished. 
And yet, I knew about Louis C.K. five years ago. I read about the whole thing on Gawker. True, it was just a blind item. His name wasn't in there. The headline read, Which beloved comedian likes to force female comics to watch him jerk off? But it did not take much clicking around to figure out that they were talking about Louis C.K. And it's not like I doubted it. It had the whiff of truth about it. And as the years went on, Gawker kept on it. Ultimately naming Louis, building up a case of anonymous and secondhand accounts, and documenting Louis's response to the rumors, which to me seemed pretty self-incriminating. I am not saying that there was enough evidence to convict the guy. I'm just saying I thought he did it. And yet, I didn't really hold it against him. I kept watching and enjoying his comedy. Like, a lot. And over those years, Louis got bigger and bigger, Gawker and later Jezebel, once Gawker got killed, they got more and more shit from Louis fans for dogging him with this stuff. And even as the whole thing simmered to a boil, Roseanne Barr calling Louis out, Tig Notaro demanding that he address this thing, his own work just daring his accusers to come forward. Even then, I just didn't think of it as that big a deal. I thought, why doesn't he just apologize already and move on so I can go see his new movie? It was only when the New York Times ran their Louis C.K. expose that my feelings about him finally flipped. So now I'm asking myself, why? Why was that the thing that did it? Is it the journalism? The fact that the Times got names, they got on-the-record sources, quotes from real people who were asking the world to listen to them. Maybe it was their stories, hearing their side of it, hearing from them, no, this wasn't a small deal. It actually hurt them. It hurt their careers. It made them feel unsafe. Is that what finally made it register with me that what he had done was actually pretty serious? Or was I just responding to the brand? I mean, the New York Times, they publish news, serious news that we must act upon. Gawker and Jezebel, by their own self-definition, they're gossip. That's like celebrity smut. Here is the worst possibility. Am I just jumping on the bandwagon? When everybody loved Louis, I loved Louis. And then when the pack turned on him, so did I. I know, guys, that this is not remotely about me, even though that was all about me. But I am the only person who I can experience all of this through. Everybody is contending with this stuff right now in their own way. Everyone, I mean, I hope everyone, is looking at these powerful men and their behavior and thinking about their own behavior or the things that were done to them or the things that they ignored that other people were doing. And what we are realizing is that, like, nobody is unaffected. This is a reckoning. Today, one part of it. Jezebel reporters Anna Merlin and Madeline Davies on their investigation of Louis C.K., what they went through to drag the truth to light and where we go from here. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Brian Webb, Jay Daniels, Rob Johnston, Alison Prohl, Emma Schullist, Devin Williamson, Emily Hill, and Vidu Namasivuyam. Hi, my name is Vidu, and I'm a user experience researcher from Montreal, Quebec. Uh, I support Canada Island because I, I believe as Canadians, it's really important to spend more time trying to understand uh, the experience of Indigenous people in this country. And I think uh, I was really gravitated to the idea of hearing a serialized story about their experience in Thunder Bay. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. 
Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by Hover. Buying a domain name for your passion, for your new project, that is the first step to launching that project or building your personal brand because that's when it kind of becomes a real thing. Your domain name tells the world who you are and what you're passionate about. Now, here is a really good reason to use Hover for registering your domain. If your personal brand, your company is successful, what it's going to need is going to change over the years. And where you host it, who you use, whether you're using an online service to host it or whether you want to do that yourself, that could change. Keeping your domain separate from the hosting gives you the flexibility to choose the right platform for your business. You can also get personalized email that matches your domain. That further supports your online identity. Guys, we use Hover here at Canada Land. They have over 400 domain extensions to choose from to help you brand yourself online. That is a lot of choice to help you find the perfect domain. Let's say that you are a designer. You can use .design instead of .com or .biz. By doing so, you are giving some important information that is going to help people find you. It's going to help you stand out. New customers can even get 10% off by going to hover.com slash CanadaLand. And this episode is brought to you by Giftogram. Welcome back, Giftogram, the Canadian company that makes it easy to be thoughtful. What is it about the end of November? Yes, yes, I'm sorry. I don't mean to add to the onslaught, but you know what? It is not a bad idea to start thinking about gift giving now. Download the Giftogram app because they make gift giving so very easy. You'll find it on the Apple App Store and on Google Play. And you just do this in like three clicks. You choose a gift. They have tested and curated great gifts at every price point. Gadgets, cameras, cupcakes, spa treatments, hot yoga classes, and then you just choose a contact. You just put in somebody's email address and Giftogram will send them a notification. That is a notification they're going to be very happy to get that you have just bought them a gift and they fill out their preferred delivery address there. The gift typically arrives three to five days later. You can send a gift to anybody in Canada or the U.S. 
Okay, this is the part that you should listen closely to because I'm essentially going to just give you $20 right now. Giftogram is going to give you $20. You are going to be buying gifts this holiday season, yes? So why not get $20 off of one of them? Giftogram will do that off of your first gift purchase. This is how confident they are that you will use them after that first purchase. Download the app, use the promo code CanadaLand, you get 20 bucks off of your first gift. There's no reason not to do this. My name is Madeline Davies. I'm the senior writer at Jezebel.com. And my name is Anna Merlin. I'm a senior reporter at the Special Projects Desk, which is an investigative unit inside of Gizmodo Media. Good to be speaking with you both. Back at you. Thanks for having us. Guys, Gawker, now Gizmodo, started publishing stories about the Louis C.K., well, the Louis C.K. sexual assaults, Five years ago, it took five years for it to go from a blind item in Gawker to Louis C.K. saying these stories are true. In the time that I was waiting for us to set up this call, Al Franken was accused of sexual abuse and admitted to it and apologized. Yeah. Is your head spinning? I mean, to be working for so long to try to bring the truth to light about one of these things, and, and I, I, I know that it can feel really impossible, like so many things are against it, and then the events of the past few months, it's, it's just, I can't think of a more stark contrast. It's strange. It's uh, a little bit surprisingly disheartening, I think, where um, I don't know if there's the expectation to like feel victorious that these people who we've been hearing rumors about for years are like finally getting called out but then there's also this element of which there's so many of them and people have not cared for such a long time that it feels very cynical uh now that people seem to suddenly be giving a shit that part of it it's like a very weird mixed bag like I think we're all very very tired I think that's the word for it yeah I think it's great that people suddenly care about sexual abuse but I think I think there are two worries one is that that this is a the trend Mm -hmm. and that it's gonna pass and we'll stop talking about sexual abuse we'll stop caring we won't put in any you know reforms to any of these industries to make sure this doesn't happen again And secondly, something Maddie and I were just talking about before we called you was uh, that so many of these stories are getting politicized. You know, the right wing is gleeful about Louis C.K., the left wing is gleeful about Roy Moore. And in fact, you know, no one was ever saying that the problem of sexual abuse was confined to the right or the left. So to see people trying to get political mileage out of it is really discouraging. Well, and it just proves that this was never about the welfare of women. You know, this doesn't have anything to do with listening to women or believing women. It's about um, it's about a pissing contest in a way. For some people, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, of course, not for everybody, but... Yeah, I guess it's it's getting... It, it has this amazing potency and, and very quickly reputations can go down. So I guess it was only a matter of time, but it feels like it's getting co-opted by a, a pre-existing system for all the idea that this is some revolutionary new thing. Finding a way to make it work for various interests, it seems to be like that's the direction. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Though at the same time, hearing Mitch McConnell use the words, I believe the women, when he's talking about the sexual abuse allegations against Roy Moore, the decades of work that feminists had to put in to have someone like Mitch McConnell use the words, I believe women, are stunning. So yeah, something is coming to fruition that didn't exist before. 
I want to talk about the wider impact more with you guys, but specifically, let's just like go through the journalism, the story. And, and I'm actually fuzzy on the details because the original blind item where Gawker reported which unnamed comedian mm. uh, likes to force women to watch him masturbate. That was a 2012 story, but it was not attributed to any particular Gawker reporter. It was uh, a shared byline, just Gawker news, right? So I, I don't know when, when the two of you entered the picture with the story. Can you give me kind of like a concise history of the reporting on Louis C.K.? I used to be more involved in the comedy community and you just kind of hear rumors about people that way. And so that coupled with the Gawker blind item always put those stories on my radar. So I was aware of them, but had not seen any journalistic uh, confirmation of it. I know I started covering it slightly more aggressively when a comedian named Jen Kirkman on her podcast told the story about an unnamed male comic who masturbated in front of women. And many blogs were speculating that she was writing about Louis C.K. Uh, the podcast then came down very suddenly. That is when I started covering it, just because it was interesting to consider an idea that, you know, what made Jen Kirkman take this podcast down? After that, I contacted Kirkman. She did not have any interest in working with us. But for better or worse, I kind of had it confirmed that it was Louis C.K. who she was speaking about. So after that, I kind of just followed along and would call out mostly male comics who would then defend Louis C.K. because it just felt very, um, I mean, not like a cover-up, but just very uh, boys clubby, kind of this whole, it's very bro-y. So yeah, I would, I kind of uh, just kept doing these like little blog posts that were very poorly received, people hated them. But I kept writing them, and then Anna, who's like a, an actual legitimate reporter, came on and, you know, started covering it slightly more doggedly. Maddie is also a legitimate reporter, by the way. But, um, <laughs> so what happened for me is I came to Gawker Media in 2014, um, and then another set of posts on Gawker in 2015 specifically named Louis C.K. as the comedian in the blind item from 2012. And the matter sort of rested there for a while because no one wanted to confirm, no one wanted to go on the record. And so when I started this year at the special projects desk, um, the story was still really bothering me because, you know, institutionally at Gawker Media, we were aware of who the two women in the Aspen incident were. And I just felt like in the wake, especially of the Cosby trial, actually, I, I felt like maybe the the environment was different, the climate was different, and maybe these women would be comfortable talking. Uh, so I reached out to them uh, both, and they were they were not ready, which I understood. I started collecting other tips, talking to other people, and you know, as Maddie and I wrote about in our joint piece, getting all this information that sort of confirmed it on background, the way that Madeline did with Jen Kirkman, but nothing that we could go with, uh, which was difficult, which was frustrating. And so then I put out a call for tips about the Louis C.K. thing in September that was a lot less sort of veiled <laughs> because, you know, I had all these people talking to me on background and off the record, and I really wanted to find someone to go on the record. And then I repeated that call for tips um, after the Harvey Weinstein story broke and, again, continued getting tips that I was not able to use. People were so scared. And so... Um, for the five women who spoke to the Times to decide 
to come forward and for, you know, for them to use their names was major. And it's important to point out too, that like, we don't fault the women involved for not wanting to talk to us specifically. I mean, I think specifically the women who were sexually abused in Aspen had put a lot of time and thought into wanting to figure out a way to finally tell their story, be believed, not have it dismissed. And so I think doing it in a major newspaper right at this exact moment was the right choice for them. And, you know, regardless of our professional disappointment at not being the first to run the story, we are really, really glad that this is out there and this is finally, you know, part of the conversation and not able to be dismissed in the way that it has been. Absolutely. Like, there are no sour grapes towards these women who did a really brave thing and we commend them for that. So Definitely. And one can understand, I guess, that if they want their story to be as credible and believed as possible, and they've got to pick their vehicle for that, even though you guys refer to the story, the New York Times is the New York Times. Madeline, you write under uh, a blog called Dirtbag, and, and you have a podcast called Dirtcast, and the Gawker ethos from which you guys, Gizmodo Media Group comes and Jezebel, always was very proud to wear the moniker of gossip yeah, or of tabloid with no apologies. And it's interesting to see the line where that kind of really derided journalism gets kind of laundered or goes through some sort of reputational rehabilitation process where, you know, like, I don't think you could have the gray lady stuff if you didn't have the gossip reporting. I get it. I I can understand because there is sort of this um, rightful trashy association with tabloid culture just as there is, I think, with journalism careers in general, where mm. it's sort of your job to dig into things in ways that maybe aren't seen as couth. But I don't know. I've always tried to re- approach my stories with a respect for the subjects, or at least a respect for our audience. So I understand the squeamishness, but I also think people should get past it. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you feel like it's sort of vindicated? I mean, Gawker, I think, in, in people's imagination still is like, oh, they're the guys who who out people and who publish the, the Hulk Hogan sex tape. And I think it's interesting to look back, like, t- to a lot of people for a long time, this has just been like, oh, that's just internet trash, you know? And, sure. and you look back and it's like, I don't know when they got things wrong. Like, there are times when I felt like maybe they shouldn't have run that. But this idea that these are just sort of an institution that just doesn't give a shit about people's reputations and just wants the clicks, I don't know that the record actually supports that idea. I mean, I think I get bitter sometimes about Jezebel constantly being lumped in with Gawker just because I do think our ethos are very different um, and the way we approach stories is very different, which is not to dismiss Gawker's work. I just know the Hulk Hogan sex tape is one of those things where I can just be like, we had nothing to do with that, you know? Yeah. I could see why you would want some distance from that one. Oh, no, (laughs) and I don't mean I'm I'm not. I don't bristle in conversation like this. It's more just when people lump our investigative work in with this sort of past idea of what Gawker, which doesn't exist anymore, once was. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, Jezebel has been covering the Terry Richardson story long before anybody else has. Mm -hmm. I think it was Gawker that... uh, brought the Cosby allegations back to light kind of before that really got rolling. So I think you're definitely right. And people don't people don't like hearing bad things about their faves, you know, and I understand that. But I think it's hard when everybody loves 
Bill Murray to learn that he was once charged with domestic assault. You know, it's very... Or accused of domestic assault in his divorce proceedings, or was he charged? Yeah, he, he was accused in divorce proceedings. Right, he was yeah. accused of being physically abusive. Yeah. Um, so it's people don't like hearing things about kind of these cultural mascots who they project a lot onto. Yeah, it's worth noting yeah. that for both Gawker and Jezebel, every time we've brought up one of these stories, our own commenters get really mad. Tom Skoka was the person who wrote the first piece that revived the Cosby allegations. Um, and people were furious. People were furious on Twitter. People were furious in the comments. You know, how dare you? Uh, the same thing happened when I put out our most recent call for tips about Louis C.K. It was not a popular decision. As Maddie says, people do not want to hear it. And so by the time the Times gets on the scene, sometimes the ice has been broken a little bit. Yeah, we're like we're like the people who go through with the machetes and like cut all of the <laughs> you know the branches yeah. out of the way while we get scratched up and yeah. disgusting, and then clears the path. And it, somebody else gets the accolades at sometimes. So no, so I hate that comparison. Can you, can you talk about that more? I mean, Anna, as an investigator, I mean, and both of you, I mean, you've written about this, like the process that this took was kind of like an, an investigation out in the open. And that meant that there was like ample opportunity for people to come at you and not just like Louis C.K. fans, but like Jen Kirkman uh, was upset. And, and you sure wrote about was. that. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about some of the resistance and how it just sort of, uh, you know, affected you guys as you pursued the story? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can see my desperation in that final public call for tips because it is so um, it is so difficult to constantly get confirmatory information that you can't use, um, and also like you know some of the ethos of Jezebel and of most sites that you know report responsibly on sexual assault is that you're not going to write about it without the consent, permission, and participation of the victims. That was part of the difficulty too. Was wanting to do this um, in a way that was sensitive to the people who had been hurt by it. Um, but you know the resistance comes from a lot of a lot of different places. It can be really striking. It feels like the crimes themselves, the abuse themselves, just sort of like take hostages, and anybody who comes close to it has to sort of absorb some of the sin or feels that way, or that you know, like like the shame, just like that Jen has to like is in conflict with you guys yeah. and that you guys are in conflict with Louis C.K. Like, and you wrote like the only person responsible for this is Louis C.K. But it doesn't feel that way in practice. Like it, it feels like it, it, there's so many, I don't know, innocent bystanders. There's so many people get kind of roped into these terrible feelings. Yeah. People were so scared to talk. People were so afraid. They were so, I mean, I can't speak to whether or not everyone involved felt uh, shame because that that's for them to say, but they definitely felt fear uh, there was a very real sense that, you know, that they were putting their livelihoods at risk. Yeah, I, I'll let Maddie talk about the Jen Kirkman stuff if you want to. I mean, one thing I'll say is that uh, we wrote that piece not to call out Jen or anyone in particular, despite maybe some harbored up resentment just from the way that she had treated our interactions. Mm. I mean, we wrote that piece because we wanted to show an insight into what it's like trying to report on these stories. You know, it wasn't to say, you know, this person screwed up our whole, you know, our whole reporting process. It was to show what I think most reporters who try to report on this stuff go through. That I think was our main intention, where it wasn't just trying to be like, look at our struggles, you know? Right. I don't think either of us wanted to 
portray it as uh, poor us because no. clearly we are not the victims here. And... No. But there's an understandable amount of curiosity about that five years between yeah. when this became knowledge, at least to people at our organization, and when it became public, you know? And um, I don't think that most people who haven't reported on sexual abuse stories understand how complicated they are and how difficult it can be to make any headway. It's really not like anything else, and it's certainly not like any other kind of crime story. The victims of any other crime, if someone got their wallet stolen, you wouldn't spend three years trying to get them to talk to you about it. It's just, yeah, it's just not the same. Yeah, and it's interesting, like, I mean, Jen in in, in her way published her own blind item, uh, and that becomes part of the public record, so then it's something you're going to talk about. People don't know what goes on behind these stories. For you to say in public, we're looking for tips on Louis C.K., to a lot of people, that almost feels like the cliched question that, that a sleazy journalist would ask, like, you know, so how often do you beat your wife, sir? And the question is uh, is implicating something. But you wouldn't have run that if you hadn't dozens of, of sources off the record, but people don't necessarily know that. Well, we don't really get the benefit of the doubt in what we do because of the you know, sense of what our organization is. And also, I think generally just writing for a feminist website. You know, my work runs on Splinter, our other news site now, and on Jezebel. And it's been striking to me how often, since I left Jezebel, how much more often people refer to me as a reporter. A lot of things that we run on Jezebel that are serious reported work, people don't refer to that way. You know, one of our colleagues, Ellie Sheckett, spent a really long time, um, about a year or two ago, trying to chase down this very strange rumor about Ted Cruz and published a piece that people didn't refer to as reporting. I've written about an alleged cult that people didn't refer to as reporting. It's sort of this weird uh, diminishment of what we do, frankly. Yeah, I think it part to do with with you know some of it is is that they're the brand itself is like both uh, because there's no you're, you're you're taking the position that there's no shame in in uh, or the original Gawker thing no shame in calling it a gossip publication and there's also a salacious benefit to that that people are interested in gossip but the other side of that is is that when you use anonymous sources when you use the word alleged that coupled with the masthead it it, it makes it possible to dismiss really easily and then when when you have stories like this that just bring the entire wrath of like you know you see the system that supported a Weinstein or the system in comedy that supported Louis C.K. That whole system comes just like directly in opposition to you when, you know, it's a real shoot the messenger kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. But it also is really worth noting that there are definitely there are definitely moments to talk about these things. If Rose McGowan had said six months ago that an army of ex-Mossad spies uh, were, you know, following her and trying to, you know, um, discredit her, people would have taken her to be mentally ill. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, this this is the only moment when those things could have been discussed and be taken seriously. So, you know, it just, again, it's not like any other story. There is a, a sensitivity of timing that is not like anything else. Do you think it's a limited window? I mean, I think that like Ronan Farrow and Jody Cantor and, and you know, like what you guys have done, like opening, opening the process up and people seeing like, wow, these people have taken on tremendous just like emotional burdens and also put their careers on the line and and been publicly castigated and sometimes the stories get killed like the Weinstein story was killed like it was killed by the New York Times before it was broken you know 
there's this moment of legitimacy for this kind of journalism. And now people are almost getting weary with like, who's it going to be next? Do you feel like this is sort of like the time's running out when the public is, is going to be open to this? Or is this now like permanently a beat that is like, we can talk about this now. We can report on this now. We can set professional standards for what makes a series of accusations reportable from this point forward. I think whether it's a window or not, and I will say the only people who have told me that this is a huge turning point have been men, which is interesting, where I I think almost every woman I know is sort of just like, yeah, I've seen this before, which maybe that says something, I don't know. But I think whether or not it is a limited window, we'll keep reporting on it. You know, we did it before it was popular, we'll keep doing it after it's popular. I do think that a lot of reporting organizations have evolved a lot um, over the past few years, but I think regardless of what other places do, I don't know, send us your tips. <laughs> it's worth noting that like all of these things, it's so recent that they get discussed at all. I mean, domestic violence as a legal concept, for example, has only been around since the 1970s. Um, yeah, even 10 years ago, the way that people wrote about sexual violence was really, really different. Um, But yeah, I I would agree with Maddie that the only people who seem to feel like this is a really permanent, for sure, turning point are men. Um, I would say that I've been thinking a lot about what the next stage of this is going to be. I'm really curious about um, what is inevitably going to happen when a lot of the, the, the men who have either been accused of or admitted to sexual abuse start coming back to their careers because, you know, these guys aren't going to fall off the face of the earth. Right. You know, most of them are going to come back and try to resume their professional lives. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how they try to do that, in what ways they try to make amends or don't. I was actually uh, thinking about John Gomeshi when we were getting ready for this call, and I was surprised to see that he has a podcast now. It seemed like the reception, at least in Canada, was not um, not super warm when he tried <laughs> to return. No, it wasn't. And... and, and- I don't think it's any accident that the second season of that uh, has not appeared amid all of these Weinstein allegations. <laughs> but it's a weird one where it almost feels like he's he took a, a really big PR hit. I mean, no one was happy to see him come back with a podcast, but the thing was just so damn boring that after a week or two of, of outrage, it wasn't with any partner who you could go and say, why are you in business with this guy? It was this independent thing. He didn't even have guests on the show, so it's just him doing these rhyming uh, monologues. Yeah. And it's sort of just been kind of forgotten. And I... I, I I wonder if it's almost like a process to normalize the fact that he's back. I'm wondering the same thing you are about, like, what is the road to career rehabilitation for these guys? And in the case of Igameshi, he hasn't admitted really to anything. He apologized uh, as part of a plea bargain for a workplace sexual harassment thing in a very vague way. But, you know, Louis C.K., as much criticism as that apology, and, you know, I guess because it doesn't actually say the words I'm sorry, as much criticism as there's been, it feels to me like the most forthcoming and complete of all of the mea culpas we've seen so far. He's not blaming it on being drunk or being brought up in a certain age. He's saying the stories are true. He's He named his accusers by name and uh, acknowledged what he had done to them. I, I and would, I thought, hmm. I can't. Like, I, I really want to know what you think because I, I feel like if if any of these guys has a chance of figuring out a next stage, that would probably be the best version of that or, or close. I'm glad he didn't deny it. That's great. Um, I would note that he only stipulates that the allegations in that story are true. Right. We we know that there are more. Um, uh huh. So I am curious about uh, if and when <clears throat> those will come out. 
Uh, I also think that a lot of us found his apology a little bit disquieting because while it did sort of on the surface take responsibility for what he had done, it fundamentally misunderstood why it was wrong. He didn't sort of really reckon with the question of his having power over the women that he had masturbated in front of. It skirted at the idea of consent in a way that I found uncomfortable. And so it is really sad to say that, yes, that was the best apology and it still wasn't very good. (laughs) Right, right. Do you think it's going to work? Yes. Yeah. I don't I don't think any of these men will, maybe except for Weinstein, I don't think any of them will have a hard time working again. No, they'll be fine. I mean, people are already rallying for Kevin Spacey. And I saw Brian Cranston the other day said something about how Kevin Spacey deserves a second chance. Mm-hmm. And it's like the second chance came after he molested the first person, not the 15th. You know? So the idea that any of these men have been like put through it and should be forgiven is very curious to me, but I don't doubt that they will be back within what is like rehab time, two years, four years. years. I mean, Mel Gibson, you know, who uh, said outrageous things about Jews and African Americans and and said hideous things to his wife and physically abused his wife, um, is, you know, last year was sitting at the Oscars, is making movies again, like, uh, especially you know, in a post-Trump landscape where everyone's memory is so short because we're in a constant state of chaos. Like, I really, I don't see any of these guys staying gone for long. And it's important to note, too, that we're not calling for a professional death sentence for every single person. But um, that's not even close to what's going to happen. Well, and you need redemption before you can be forgiven, you know? Um, I was thinking today about... uh, the video of Johnny Depp being drunk and smashing glasses at his then wife, Amber Heard. Yeah. And how easily dismissed that was at the time, just because she sort of has a cold and unlikable public persona. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm one, I, I don't know, he's going to be in the new Fantastic Beasts movie. You know, he's, Johnny Depp is going to be fine. Where I wonder if that tape had come out a year later, would he still be doing basically Disney movies? I don't yeah, know. That's a great question. The whole thing really is being visited upon people in a very personal way. I mean, I think for women, of course, and, and for victims more than anybody. But it's it's like I have to ask questions of myself because I read that story, you know, about Louis C.K. in 2012. And I did not doubt that it was true. And I continue to really enjoy Louis C.K. more more than like, oh, I like this guy's work. But he felt like an important, almost like a moral philosopher to right. dudes. And I was able to, even as I was, you know, reporting on Gomeshi's sexual abuse, Louis C.K.'s felt like it was like something that could be easier dismissed or just sort of wrapped into the fucked up persona that he presents. And the, the effect of having these on the record sources telling the stories and saying what this had done to their lives had the power to like actually make me recon- like, 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 oh, why hadn't I, why did I need them to tell me that, you know? There was something I, really I, I, insidious. I, yeah. I'm sorry, there was something really insidious about the way that Louis C.K. packaged his public persona um, that I thought about a lot, where, you know, he talked about being disgusting and he talked about, uh, you know, whatever. He talked about masturbation in his act. He, he really sort of went out of his way to create and sort of normalize a set of, like, dirtbaggy things. In hindsight, <laughs> his edgy comedy and particularly his latest film, which centers on an inappropriate sexual relationship, um, feels like an attempt to normalize some of what he was doing privately. 
Yeah, it's it's really messy because there's a feeling of like like almost personal betrayal that the stuff that I took seriously as art and as sort of somebody exploring. Yes, I have these disgusting impulses, but I want to be a moral person. And to find it like, oh, is that just a big sham campaign to cover for this uh, eventual uh, expose? Mm. I share the kind of like knee jerk response that some people have, and then I, I have to think it through. I forget who it was, but somebody tweeted. A woman tweeted. Let me find a man who will protect me the way that men protect the reputations of complete strangers. Yeah. So, you know, like, <laughs> there is this occasion to like look at like why do I give a shit so much about like like I don't do stuff like that. Why do I? I, I think a lot of men are feeling somehow personally implicated because. Everybody has stuff they've done that they shouldn't have. And it's almost like I have to remind myself, oh, but I haven't actually sexually assaulted anybody, so I'm probably okay. But I, I, I feel like that's what, why this is so much women are leading the charge in this and, and men are, are laying back and at worst defending some of this stuff. Mm. I mean, you and I mean the general you, not you, Jesse specifically, uh, should feel implicated. You know, that is a part of growing as a person is observing the way that your past behavior has maybe hurt other people. Um, and that is not just uh, for men, that is for everybody. I mean, I know like as a white person, I have to do that all the time where I have to question, you know, what have I done to contribute to racism or classism or, you know, all of the things that I have definitely caused harm in. And so it's good to feel uncomfortable with that. It's good to sit with that and wonder how you have hurt people or at least not helped people mm-hmm. um and i don't think there's anything wrong with that discomfort yeah yeah it's good but it's hard not not in an i'm the real victim here or men are the real victim here but i, th- I think this is a hard moment for yeah, yeah this is. is what happens when you're raised your whole life to have confidence <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's your Canada Land for this week. You can email me. I am at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. If you like our Facebook page, then our stories show up in your newsfeed. I tell you that because our stories are published whenever they're ready. So it's a better way to make sure that you see our stuff than simply going to canadalandshow.com, which is where you will also find all of our news stories. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This show was produced by Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. You ever been there when an uncomfortable question about race comes up, but you don't know how to answer? That's where Code Switch lives. Each week, we're talking about race and how it intersects with every other aspect of your life, from politics and pop culture to history and food. Listen now to the Code Switch podcast from NPR.